Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 22nd. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk turkey for Thanksgiving with turkey expert Rich Buckholz from the University of Mississippi, and we'll test your knowledge about some Thanksgiving science. First up, though, the SA50, an annual feature of Scientific American. Here's Editor-in-Chief John Rennie to briefly explain the SA50. It's our annual list uh, compiled by the editors of 50 people and organizations that are helping technology to develop for the benefit of society. This is the fifth year for the Scientific American 50 list. 50 people and organizations, and so it's not all scientists. No, that's right. We're trying to take uh, people and organizations from the worlds of research, but also from business and policymaking, because one of the messages we try to convey with the list is uh, that the development of technology doesn't just depend on bright people in laboratories coming up with new technologies. It also depends a lot on the decisions that businesses make in the ways that they're commercializing them, and also the kinds of policy decisions uh, that are made affecting laws and so forth that uh, affect how these technologies roll out. And how are the 50 chosen? Uh, they're selected by the editors of the magazine from nominations that come uh, both from the editors themselves, but from uh, various outside observers and, and also including some past winners. And the research leader of the year is Angela Belcher from MIT. She's still a young scientist. She got her undergraduate degree only 15 years ago, and she's already compiled quite a career. In 2004, she got a MacArthur Fellowship, often referred to as a genius grant. Scientific American cited her for, quote, the use of custom-evolved viruses to advance nanotechnology, end quote. To find out more, I called her at her office at MIT. Dr. Belcher, good to talk to you today. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you take advantage of natural systems, kind of innate talents to self-replicate and and self-organize, and then you get them to do something useful for us. Is that basically a, a good summary of what your approach is? Um, yes, we look at how um, nature makes materials, particularly hard materials. Examples are like shells and bones, and try to understand um, how organisms through evolution have been able to have such exquisite control over inorganic systems um, in a way that's uh, environmentally friendly, in a way that um, is, is room temperature and room pressure, but with an amazing amount of control at the nanoscale to the macro scale. And looking at systems like that is just awe-inspiring to us. And we say, well, um, life had a chance to work with certain materials, um, shells and bones and some magnetic materials, but really hasn't worked with a lot of uh, materials that we would like to use ourselves, that we consider more technologically important materials. So in my lab at MIT, we give organisms the opportunity to work with those materials and try to use them to build devices in in more environmentally friendly ways. Okay, let's talk about some specifics. I know you're working with viruses. Give me give me the, the lowdown. Okay, so we work with a particular kind of virus. It's called M13 bacteriophage. A, a phage means a bacteria eater, and so they're they're very specific. Um, they have a very specific host, which is a very specific bacteria. And we like these um, viruses a lot because they uh, only have a couple different genes, and those genes code for a couple different proteins. And so they're easy for us to manipulate in the lab. And um, what we do is through kind of a, a combination of directed evolution and selection and kind of a Darwinian process, we uh, force these viruses or encourage these viruses to work with materials that we're interested in, semiconductor materials and 
um, metal oxide materials for electrodes. And in about a couple of week period, we can get them to start using precursors to uh, semiconductors and uh, metals and um, magnetic materials uh, as a basis to control devices. Because within a couple of weeks, you have lots and lots of generations of these viruses, right? That's right. So we use what's called a combinatorial approach. And um, uh, organisms had about 50 million years to get good at making hard materials in the ocean based on you know trial and error and using what's in their environment. Um, and we don't have 50 million years. We have a short time period. And so we do about a billion experiments at a time where um, we can genetically engineer our uh, our viruses to express different random peptide sequences, and we can, um, you know, about a one microliter sample, we can introduce about a billion um, different viruses to a semiconductor wafer or um, a, a, an electrode and have them see if they can actually molecularly imprint it or uh, try to do a chemical and physical map to it so that they can actually then have a template to grow that material. Because... These things have been spending billions of years figuring out the chemistry, so why reinvent the wheel when the wheel's been perfected? We're just inspired by how, like, when two abalone get together, a male abalone, a, fe- a female abalone, they make millions of, of, of baby abalones that all have the genetic code that says, this is how to build an exquisite shell that's a nanostructure. So what we want to do is we want to give a solar cell or a battery or an ultracapacitor the genetic information that says, this is how to build this um, this device, and once once you have the DNA that that tells you how to build that device, all you have to do is keep amplifying it and basically passing it on to the uh, your offsprings, which say this is how to build a, a solar cell or this is how to build a battery, and that's what is the main driving force uh, in our lab. It really sounds like science fiction. People must tell you that all the time. Um, people did do tell us that, and um, did tell us that more in the uh, in the past, but it. Um, you know, it, it seems like a, a big jump, but it's really not because through through just selection processes, um, you and I um, learned how to make bones uh, using proteins, and so we're using the exact same materials, amino acids and proteins, but we're just giving them a different starting um, starting material instead of building bone. Let's say you know build um, um, cobalt oxide instead, and um, the pieces are all there. It's just when organisms were evolving, they didn't have the opportunity to work with those elements. So we just think about expanding their horizons and giving them a greater opportunity. This is the the uh, hackneyed journalist question, but how how long do you think it's going to be before you see actual commercial applications for some of these things? I think that it, it that it depends on what the commercial applications are. Um, so for some of our battery uh, electrodes, we're getting pretty good at making those. We're making uh, starting to make prototypes in the lab. And what the final product is, whether it actually has it actually has a virus in it or whether it has uh, proteins or amino acids that are used to grow those kind of electrodes, you know, that's really not determined yet. But but some of the products, um, uh, at least the ones that are based more on proteins, I could I could see, you know, within five years. I know you're you're also looking at yeast and maybe some other organisms. What's what's next in your lab? Well, our, our lab right now is really focused on energy and materials for energy. Uh, it's an area that we think that we can make a, a big impact in. One of the things that, that is exciting to us is something that we call nano-alloying, which is basically how do you put two different materials that are normally hard to grow together side by side. And that's something that biology is really good at doing because the template that we have to grow these materials is a soft template. It's a flexible template. It's a biological molecule. What and are we What are we talking about specifically in in real biological systems? 
Um, so this is still, you could do this with, with yeast, you could do this with, with bacteria, you could use this with, with proteins uh, to, to build these. Um, if, you, if you take an example of, uh, again, an abalone shell or certain kinds of shells, they put two different crystal structures of, of calcium carbonate side by side um, naturally. Um, and so what we're trying to do is put two different semiconductors side by side um, um, or put a metal and a metal oxide side by side. This is for catalytic activity. This is for, for um, our fuel cell projects. It's for our solar cell projects. But it's also for some of our um, medical applications that we're working on for diagnostic materials for um, cancer diagnostics, for example. And so we think that's something that biology really has to offer, the, the ability to to grow materials in new ways and place them side by side to make totally new materials, new alloy materials for all these kind of applications. And so based on that, getting back to the question, we're going to focus on on making new kinds of materials and new kinds of alloys and assembling them mostly for energy but also for medicine. And again, this would be a kind of thing that if you were going to use a, a traditional manufacturing process, would be virtually impossible to get these materials to uh, organize next to each other? Um, yes. To normally to do it, it would be a very uh, expensive uh, process um, where you'd actually have to layer materials on top of each other. And the problem is is that um, sometimes two materials you want to put together, their crystal structure, the way their atoms are, are arranged and aligned are different. So when you superimpose them on top of each other, um, they have something called lattice mismatch, and that causes strain. Um, but if you think about layering materials with um, with uh, a biological template in between it, um, we're asking the biology, the biological template, to take on the structure uh, of the uh, atoms of the inorganic materials, and so that um, relieves the strain and allows you to put things together in new ways. Really interesting. So in in 2004, you got a MacArthur Fellowship. And these are often called in the popular press genius grants. So what, how does that change your life when you've been officially dubbed in the public's eye a genius? Well, it, um, it, it's, it, it hasn't, um, um, there's a lot of expectations, I think, um, which is, which is, you know, which is good, um, that we're, that um, there's expectations to be doing very uh, innovative and exciting work, and uh, that's exactly where we want to be. Um, and so that part is good. Um, it also brings um, more um, attention um, to the kinds of processes that we're working on, which um, which we're excited about, which is trying to think how how to how to do uh, greener chemistries and uh, environmentally friendly um, synthesis and organization of materials. Um, and it gives us the opportunity to um, to interact with um, with the um, you know scientific interest community that may not be in in the particular field that we're interested in, and that's great because um, there's just a lot of interest in in, in uh, biology and, and biology nano interfaces and interfaces with the environment and and uh, energy right now, and uh, we see a lot of interest from uh, from elementary and and high school students as well as um, people in the community and so uh, I think it's raised that awareness um, which makes it more fun for us and makes it more rewarding. Great stuff. Dr. Belcher, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. The entire SA50 list is in the December issue of Scientific American and is available on the website www.siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, you can buy a robotic turkey to help you flush out poachers. Story two, cooking fires are twice as common on Thanksgiving than on a typical day. 
Story three, I live in the Bronx in New York City, and I have never once seen wild turkeys wandering around within the city limits. Not a trick question. I'm not counting the Bronx Zoo. And story four, this year's crop of turkeys are a little bit smaller on average than your typical turkey. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Americans will eat about 45 million turkeys on Thanksgiving. That's about a sixth of the entire year's turkey consumption. Ten years ago, I spoke to turkey researcher Rick Buchholz, who was doing some fascinating work that I wrote about in the September 1996 Scientific American. The male turkey's bald head had been thought to serve as a signal to females that the guy was available, but Buchholz thought the bald head might also help the turkeys dump body heat. His experiments, which involved no kidding putting socks on the turkey heads, showed that if turkey heads were feathered, the birds would indeed struggle in hotter parts of the country. Anyway, I thought for Thanksgiving I would check in with Buckholz and get the latest turkey tales. I called him at his office at the University of Mississippi. Dr. Buckholz, great to talk to you today. Nice to talk to you, Steve. So you are, correct me if I'm wrong, a full-time professional turkey scientist. Is that right? I am a full-time animal behaviorist who focuses on the behavior of turkeys. The behavior of turkeys. So uh, are, are the turkeys behaving? They are behaving. They're a little nervous this time of year, but they're behaving. Well, that's certainly understandable. So tell me about your, your current turkey research. Well, a long-term interest of mine has been whether the ornaments that are sexually selected in turkeys that are involved in, in mate assessment uh, indicate something to uh, female turkeys that might help them um, raise more offspring. And specifically, the idea that those ornaments are dependent on the parasite load of the male that has them. So that is, a female who chooses a male with larger, brighter ornaments can be assured that that male uh, grew to look prettier to her because uh, he, he has fewer parasites. And she is unlikely to get these parasites during mating, so it's not an issue of her possibly becoming infected by these parasites. But because there's usually a genetic basis for parasite resistance, she may be looking for good genes for her offspring to survive better. Right, so that the offspring would have a lower susceptibility toward getting the parasitic load in the first place. Right, yeah. I mean, male turkeys don't provide any paternal care. They don't help the female incubate the eggs. They don't feed her. They don't protect their young. Um, so all she's getting from him are sperm so that she has uh, a matching set of genes for her offspring. And so if she's going to only get that from the male, she should choose carefully. And parasites are an important part of turkey life history. So uh, finding a resistant male and getting his resistance genes for your offspring it's probably uh, evolutionarily a good idea. Right, and she doesn't realize that's what she's doing. She's just been programmed to be most attracted to the turkeys that have the brightest colors, and those brightest colors are a marker for the health of the turkey. Well, usually in animal behavior studies, we don't make any assumptions about the uh, the individual animal's thought processes per se. Good idea. So turkeys don't uh, have a good reputation for being smart. I would say they've been around for a very long time, so they're smart at being wild turkeys. But, um, yeah, she she doesn't necessarily have to walk around and say, oh, by mating with this this guy, I'm, I'm going to have more surviving offspring. All that has to happen is the genes that make her be choosier about this 
um, have to survive better to the next generation by showing up in babies that survive better because they're resistant to parasites. So I saw on your website some research related to the ultraviolet reflection of the feathers. What's what's that all about? Well, it turns out that turkeys can see wavelengths of light that uh, we can't see, and those are wavelengths in the ultraviolet spectrum. So we normally think about ultraviolet as harmful, that it uh, causes um, melanoma, skin cancer, that sort of thing. Um, but the near ultraviolet is actually used by some organisms, some some birds, uh, lots of insects, and it turns out that turkeys are one of the bird species that can see ultraviolet light. So I was curious about whether turkeys could uh, see changes in feather reflectance, the colors coming off of feathers, when they become uh, when they're parasitized, uh, that we can't notice, and by collaborating with colleagues at Auburn University, we are able to show that the turkeys that I experimentally infected with parasites actually showed less UV reflectance from their shiny feathers on their breasts and their wings compared to turkeys that had never been infected. So a a parasitized turkey looks completely different to another turkey than than a non-parasitized one, and, and in ways that we can't really appreciate. Exactly. Yeah. So because we can't sense ultraviolet light with our visual pigments, we can't even pick up on the cues that turkeys are probably using. And now that I know that this is changing, the next step is to find out whether females actually care about this change. We, we don't know whether uh, there's a behavioral response to turkeys being different in their ultraviolet reflectance. We do know that domestic turkeys uh, prefer to be in poultry houses where the lighting includes the ultraviolet wavelength. Interesting, because if without the UV, they they keep looking around saying, nothing looks right to me. That's right. Imagine the UV has a whole other color in, in the spectrum. What it looks like, how turkeys perceive it, we don't know, but it's sort of equivalent of um, beyond violet, ultraviolet, a whole other sort of color. Right, so it's like if we were in a dark room where we just couldn't make out certain colors. Exactly. Interesting. Dr. Buckles, very interesting. Thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. For more turkey research news, just Google Richard Buckholz, B-U-C-H-H-O-L-Z. And there's more from Rich about the turkey on your table over at today's edition of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. That's available at the website and at iTunes. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, robot turkeys help pinch poachers. Story two, kitchen fires double on Thanksgiving. Story three, I have never seen wild turkeys strut their stuff in the Bronx. And story four, 2006 turkeys are slightly smaller than normal. Time's up. Story one is true. A company called Custom Robotic Wildlife, Inc. sells robot turkeys designed to entice would-be poachers. The $1,100 robo-turkeys can fan their tails and bob their heads and keep doing that even after catching a shotgun blast. Although after it's hit, you probably want to put on a new turkey skin and wait for it. Dressing sold separately. Story two is true. Thanksgiving sees twice as many cooking fires as a typical day. That's according to statistics from the U.S. Fire Administration. Last Thanksgiving, about 1,450 reported cooking fires were responsible for some $21 million in property damage. That's why I leave it to the professionals and eat out. And story four is true. A hot summer in your prime turkey farm areas resulted in birds that are slightly smaller than normal. All of which means that story three about me never seeing wild turkeys 
turkeys within the New York City limits is totally bogus. Because wild turkeys are doing quite well in the Bronx, thank you. You'll often see them crossing the road in the northeast part of the borough, which still has a lot of forest. Why did the turkey cross the road, you ask? Hey, who wants to know? What are you doing sticking your beak into that turkey business? Remember, this is the Bronx. What happens here stays here. In fact, you didn't even see what happened here, my friend. So why don't you just move along, go home, have yourself a nice Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Anybody asks you what you've seen, you just ask them to pass the potatoes. Well, that's it for this Thanksgiving edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles and science video news at our website, www.siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.